Uh, looking out, as Pastor Patrick mentioned, it's a joy to see a number of family members visiting for this Memorial Day weekend and having visitors among us. Let me fill you in a little bit on what we're doing here at Escalon CRC. Uh, for the last several months, we've been working our way through the book of John. We've been doing so with the question, who is this Jesus? What does John tell us about who Jesus is, where he came from, what he came to do? And we've made it to the beginning of John chapter 8, which leads us to something that we have to address before we even get into the text. When you look in your Bibles at the start of John chapter 8, you will see a note in your ESV Bibles that say, the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7:53 through 8 verse 12. And then they take that whole section and they put it in double brackets just so that you know that. And here's the reason for that. So when John wrote down his gospel, the only way that this good news was to be preserved and shared with the expanding church around the known world at the time was for him to write it down and for, those, uh, for that to then be copied by hand and carried and distributed throughout all of those different churches. Well, over time, that original that John wrote either because of wear and tear and age, or because it was destroyed by those who were seeking to destroy those, the church, was lost. And we do not have anything that John wrote. We don't know what his handwriting looks like. All we have are copies and copies from different dates and times and places. Now, to be abundantly clear, some people will use that knowledge and say, well, see, you, you have no clue what John actually originally wrote because it doesn't exist any longer, which is just nonsense. It's actually remarkable when you take all of the many different manuscripts that we do have and you compare something, for example, that was found in Egypt dated around the year 400 to something that was found in Spain dated around the year 1000. And those two manuscripts are remarkably accurate and identical in almost every way. However, because they were hand copied and passed around, there are moments where they are different, where someone misspelled a word here or uh, accidentally skipped a line in the transmission here and missed a sentence or where they added something to try to explain it. But because we can compare all of those, you can usually tell what was changed or lost and none of it makes a difference in our understanding of who Jesus was or our understanding of who God is or the theology. And almost all of it are small and easily explainable. Except for a few bigger, longer sections. The biggest and longest of which happens to be the text that is before us today. This is the text that deals with the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. And to cut to the chase, it seems very unlikely that this story was part of the original writings of John. As the note says, it is absent from the earliest copies of John that we have, uh, where it just jumps in the story from 752 to 812. Additionally, that 
jump makes sense. You can take this story out. And in fact, in many ways, the context of 8 chapter 12 seems to fit better into the Feast of Booths rather than at a later time. The story does continue naturally in many ways. Furthermore, there are words and phrases in this section that John doesn't use anywhere else in his gospel. And finally, there are other manuscripts where this story doesn't appear here, but it shows up at a different part in John, or at the end of John, or some where it's in the book. All of which suggests that it probably was not in the original. Which leads to the first question. Well, then where did this come from? And again, cutting to the chase, many would suggest that when the stories of Jesus were being passed around and remembered and shared, obviously not everything that he did, according to John's own admission, was written and included. And this was a story that people appreciated about Jesus, what happened, a true story, but never found its way in the gospel But because people appreciated and thought it taught something important, they looked for a place to include it. And many put it here for some good reasons of why it was put here. And so many would say this is very likely a true story that occurred that was just looking for a place to be landed so it could be shared and remembered and passed down. And although it may not have been in the original John, it has become a beloved storied and part of the Christian tradition for a very long time. Unfortunately, I don't know that we can ever come to a very clear understanding of where this story came from. Which leads to the second and, and bigger question. Well, then can we trust that it's true? Should we consider it Scripture? Should I be preaching on it this morning or not? And honestly, I I struggle with that. I think we certainly need to know all of that background and detail as we look at it. I think we have to be very careful about using this story to develop theological themes and ideas. And it's probably better to use similar texts that highlight those same themes in order to make those points rather than come to here. However, a lot of the reasons why this is still in here, or at least referred to, is because it is consistent with the character of Jesus that we do know. But if nothing else... I thought it was important to at least address and teach on this passage because some of the ways that it can often be misused and misunderstood. And if nothing else, maybe I can correct some of that misuse and understanding as we look at this uh, this section uh, for today. So with all of that understanding and background, let's go ahead and look at this story as told from uh, John chapter 753 through 811. It can be found in your pew Bibles on page 1062. All of it will be on the screen behind me where you can follow along. It says, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, 
This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote in the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Well, there's certainly plenty of examples that I could come up with on my own and from my own life and use to open up this message this morning. I thought instead that I would ask you to come up with your own example. I want to invite you to think of a time where you were busted. Think of a time when you got caught red-handed, doing something that you were not supposed to be doing. A time when the usual options we take of, of coming up with an excuse or, or, or coming up with a lie to say, oh no, that never happened, you're, you're mistaken, you're wrong. None of that was an option. There was no doubt in the other person's mind that you were doing what you were not supposed to be doing. You knew it, they knew it, and you were in trouble because you knew there's going to be consequences. Like I said, I could have come up with plenty of examples from my own life. But what about you? Do, you? do you have at least one moment in your mind? Can you remember what it felt like when there was no getting out of this one? Can you remember how your mind still tried to figure out a way that you could get out of it and avoid the consequences you knew would be coming? Can you remember the, the shame that you felt because your sin was exposed and raw? Can you recall your fear over, okay, what is this person going to do with what they know about me? As we all know, it is no fun getting busted for doing something wrong. I think the reason why I bring that up and encourage you to think of an example like that is pretty clear from this text. The setting is laid out where Jesus is again in the temple and he is teaching. And while there, the scribes and the Pharisees, people who are experts in understanding and application of the law, people who have dedicated their whole existence and their lives to knowing all of God's law and to applying it as perfectly to their lives as possible, they bring to Jesus a woman who has been busted. 
She has been caught red-handed in the very act of adultery. And as it still is to this very day, there is a certain extra layer of shame and social criticism given to sexual sins. Even if, as also it is today, back then the act was more common than people would want to admit. And so these people, zealous for the law, bring this woman to Jesus, which leads to the first obvious problem, which is, well, where was the man? Adultery is a two-person sin. And according to the law that these people were trying to defend, that other person should also have been right there next to her, facing the exact same consequences with the same exact accusations. They should also have been standing right next to her. But they weren't. She was here alone which wasn't right. Well, in front of Jesus and the crowd, her accusers say, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And to that question... Or And with that question and with a comment that follows immediately after, what we immediately realized was it wasn't just this woman who was being put on trial, but Jesus was as well. And in fact, it's more likely that these scribes and Pharisees were using the shame and circumstances of this woman in order to try to get Jesus in one of their classic traps. They were trying once again, as they do in other circumstances in the, in the Gospels, of getting Jesus to say something that will, will make him slip up and, and, as it says, have a reason to charge him. And, and here's the trap. The law does say that the penalty for committing adultery is for the, the uh, people, both people involved, to be stoned. To have rocks thrown at them until they die. Now, if Jesus were to say, yes, you've quoted the law accurately to me, you know the consequences, let's stone her. Well, there's some problems with that for Jesus. And it comes in a number of different ways, but some of them that get highlighted in the commentaries on this suggest the fact that uh, it pr might have not been as uncommon of a sin to catch people in as it was and is today. And, and to, for Jesus to say, yes, the penalty of death applies to this person would put him on the much stricter and harsher side of society, which would bring into question a lot of his previous teachings about mercy and, and forgiveness. And, and it would put Jesus in a, in a light that he was not the gracious teacher that he has presented himself to be. Furthermore, as citizens in the Roman Empire, the Jewish nation as a whole did not have the right at this time to pronounce the death penalty. 
They couldn't uh, act as the governing bodies. That was Rome's authority. It was an issue that comes up when they try to kill Jesus later on, which is why they had to bring him to Pilate to convict Jesus of guilt. But the Jews couldn't do this. And so if Jesus were to say, yes, let's apply the death penalty to this woman for the circumstances, he would also get in trouble with the Roman authorities and then be in opposition to them, suggesting that the Jews should have the right in opposition to the law to impose the penalty for violating their scriptures. And so that's the one problem of the text. Jesus would get in trouble with the Roman authorities and with the crowds that had been following him if he said, yes, enact the death penalty. But in this yes or no scenario, on the other side, if Jesus were to say, well, no, I know she's been caught, I know she's guilty, but let's not kill her. Well, then the, uh, the problem is clear. He is now in opposition to what the scriptures say. He's opposed to the teachings of the law and of Moses. And therefore, he's putting himself in opposition to Moses, which means at least he's teaching something different and antagonistic against the Bible. Or he's a, is a heretic and himself worthy of death and dismissal and ignoring. He's a false teacher because he's contradicting scripture. And so in light of that, those that bring this woman to Jesus think that the trap is set. In what they present to him as a yes or no scenario... Jesus is going to get in trouble no matter what he says or what he does. There's no way out of this. He's going to be exposed as someone who rebels against Rome or as someone who contradicts Scripture. So what's Jesus going to do? Well, what Jesus does is he kind of bends down and he starts writing in the dirt. Sorry, Joanne, if I just dodged out of your camera for a bit, but maybe I should stand or people at home would wonder, where'd he go? And he starts writing in the dirt, which is an odd detail to add. And that causes a whole lot of people to, to speculate about, well, what was he writing? And some guess maybe he was starting uh, before and after he speaks, maybe writing some scripture that was convicting for them, or, or maybe he's writing uh, some of the commandments. Others suggest that the, the verbs used for writing, using his finger to write, are synonymous with the verbs used in the Old Testament when God wrote with his finger the, the commandments on the tablets. And, and so this is revealing Jesus as the lawgiver himself rather than subject to the law. But all of that is just speculation. We don't know. We have no idea what he would have been writing. And so any guesses are just that, a guess. Regardless, the, the people who are pressing him assume that this is just a, a stalling tactic. And so they keep asking and they keep pressing, what are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to say? And as Jesus often did in these kinds of traps that were set for him, rather than fall into the struggles of either side or come down with a clear yes or no, Jesus gives this answer in response when he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to cast a stone at her. If you want a perfect application of the law, 
then can you bring a perfect judgment against this woman? And then he goes back to writing in the ground. And to that unexpected challenge, the people start to leave. Maybe they leave because they realize that the trap that they had set for Jesus, he had avoided. And in his answer, didn't work to bring charges against him. But more than likely, they're leaving because they realize they can't fit that standard. That whether they are guilty themselves of a very similar sin to this woman or any other sin, they know that they cannot bring a perfect judgment against her. And in knowing that, they all leave. And when it's just Jesus and the woman left, Jesus finally addresses the one that had been busted. Says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And when she says, no one, Lord, Jesus responds with his judgment. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And to be clear, this is often where the text goes wrong and where it gets misused. Not the text goes wrong, but where, but where people's interpretation can go wrong and where this text is misused. You see, a lot of people will see in the leaving of the accusers and in the quote of Jesus in the first part of what he says, they will only hear, neither do I condemn you. And then they will use this story as a way of suggesting that we should not judge other people's sin. That we are supposed to connect and relate to the accusers of this woman. And we are supposed to ask ourselves, well, are you perfect enough to be able to point out when other people are sinning and doing wrong? They then say that this is a call to recognize that because all of us are sinners to one extent or another, we have no right to point out sins of other people. And therefore, they would say to apply this text is to you know, be like Jesus, to just overlook sins in the world, to just let it go, to ignore it and pretend like it never happened because that's the better, more Christian way. Now, part of that can be true. We all do have sins that we commit, and we can't accuse others when we don't understand, as if we don't understand what it's like to be guilty ourselves. We all have logs in our own eyes that need to be removed before we point out the specks and try to remove the specks in our neighbor's eyes. But the answer to sin is not just to overlook it, and ignore it. Just let it go. That doesn't address or correct the problem of sin. Instead, we have to go to Jesus with that sin. Many looking at this text have pointed out the almost irony of the fact that when all others have gone away, recognizing that they are not without sin, that the only person left was Jesus who was the only one who himself was guiltless and could have thrown a stone at her, 
Jesus is the perfect lawgiver and law keeper, is the only one who could have pronounced a just condemnation against this woman according to the standard that he had set. And again, don't forget that this woman deserved it. She had been busted in her sin. She was undeniably guilty, and her life was literally forfeit. She deserved to die for what she had done. However, Jesus doesn't just overlook the sin and disregard the law. Neither did he bring the condemnation that she had earned. As John 3.17 had earlier said, Jesus quoted Jesus as having said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that he might be, the world might be saved through him. Jesus was there to save this woman by fulfilling the law for her. And that's what Jesus does. Instead of condemning this woman in grace, he offers her the opportunity to become something different. He gives her the chance to change when he says, go and from now on sin no more. Now imagine, if you will, that this woman does walk away from this crowd, having escaped the just punishment of her sin. And for a while, she does great. And then a month later, she's caught doing exactly the same thing again. And her response is, well, are you perfect? Can you cast the stone at me? No. So ignore my sin again and just let me go. In that scenario, we would say she missed it. She missed the whole point of the grace that had been given to her and that opportunity to have changed. Yes, we know that she still would have sinned in her life, but each day that she lived past that day was a day that she didn't deserve to live. And it was a new opportunity that Jesus had given to her in grace to become a different person. Changed and living for the Lord rather than living for the pleasures of the flesh. And that all brings this story to us. Because instead of identifying ourselves with the accusers, really we all should identify with the woman. You see, the reason why I started with encouraging you to think of a time when you, like me, were busted, caught as guilty of doing something wrong with no way around it, is because we all have been there. In fact, all of us are this woman. All of us will be brought before Jesus someday. And there will be no excuses that we can use, no lies we can tell. We will know that we are guilty and we will know that God knows that we are guilty. And we will know that justice demands we lose our lives and our relationship with God to be internally condemned to hell. That's what all of our sins have earned. 
but because Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf. Because he didn't ignore our sin, but he paid the just price of death for our sins when he sacrificed himself on the cross in our place. In grace, he's given us the opportunity to change. To not only escape the consequences of our sins, but to go become something new and different and to live lives rather than pursuing our own pleasures and desires, to live for his glory and honor. Every day we exist is a day of grace that God has given to us an opportunity to be something different. And recognizing that If we are to get a message from this story, the message certainly is not, well, just ignore sin. Let it go. It's no big deal. All of us are sinners, and therefore, who are you to judge somebody else? We can't ignore that. We can't let people just walk foolishly into the errors of the sins and destroy their lives in the process. Instead, it's a call to celebrate To recognize the gift of the gospel, which is Jesus has paid the penalty of your sin and you are now free. Not only free from the consequences, but free to live for the Lord as you were created to live. And so we celebrate and we change. We say, Jesus, because of your grace, I no longer am the person who I was before. But in light of your grace, as we did with that responsive call to worship or a responsive uh, reading of the law, I will live according to your law in response to the grace that you have given to me. We are all busted. We all sin. But Jesus says, come to me. Come to me in faith, Trust that I paid the penalty of your sin and then go and sin no more, knowing that you are not condemned. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, each one of every each and every one of us sits before you this morning as guilty. And we can all think of moments where not only have we been caught in our sin, but we've thought we've gotten away with it. But we know that your eyes see everything. That you know even our very hearts. We are guilty before you. And we know what we deserve in that guilt. We know we deserve death. For that is the wages of sin. But we celebrate that the gift of God through Jesus Christ is grace. It is life. Lord, may that reminder of your gospel message that you did not ignore our sin, but you paid the penalty of our sin, call us to a whole new life. May we not only worship you for the grace that you have given to us, but may we see the possibility of a whole new lifestyle 
And may we, this church, be identified by people who are living for you, who have been changed by the good news of what you've done for us through your son. And now we are no longer enslaved to our sin, but we are your sons and daughters seeking to build your kingdom and to live for you in gratitude and appreciation for the fact that we did not get what we deserved, but that every day is an opportunity and a gift to live for you. May we take advantage of those opportunities in this day and in this week. And may we go from this place with a desire to sin no more, but to live for you. And the power and the strength of your holy, through your Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.